0: Okay. Session 10. Father, we ask you again to enlarge our heart, accelerate our capacity to receive. Lord, we understand that our desire for you is your gift to us. Lord, enlarge it, enlarge your gift to us, our desire for you. We know that our desire for you is an expression of your desire for us. So we ask you to enlarge it the name of jesus amen okay session 10 a revelation of jesus as a safe savior again you you know that these uh, sessions are there's more on them on the handouts than obviously we can cover and again i'll say it maybe every time that the teaching session is just a reading the menu you can't really Be fed in the real sense at a teaching meeting. You can have your appetite awakened and stirred. And I'm I'm not saying it's impossible because obviously the Lord can, can do that. But let's say it this way. The greatest feeding is alone with the Lord. Taking the word and turn it into conversation with him. It's called meditation. I mean, you can be fed in a teaching meeting, but not at the deepest levels. Let's say it more accurately. You can be stirred mostly at a teaching meeting. You're fed in weeks and months of turning the Word of God into dialogue, into conversation. These principles become your very, your very dialogue from your heart, the very language of your heart with the Lord. And then the Holy Spirit feeds you in that context far greater than He feeds you even being inspired in a teaching meeting. And so the 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 issue, the concept of these notes is to advertise them, to let you know some of the ideas that are in them. And the point is, you'll say, okay, I can't remember that much, but remember that one point about having more of God. That's it. I'll go read the notes. That's the point of of these sessions, is to uh, get you uh, just a little bit hooked up to the Song of Solomon, if you're brand new with it, and to uh, strengthen your desire for those of you that are familiar with it. And so I don't apologize for just, I just can barely go over just a few principles and and leave you with some notes and leave you with the books, the textbooks. And there's a lot of books out there in the body of Christ on the Song of Solomon. Just read them. Make it a lifelong hobby. Make it your divine recreation. Okay, verse 6. Who is this coming out of the wilderness? Like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchant's Fragrant powders. Behold, it's Solomon's couch. With 60 valiant men around it. All of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords. Being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of fear in the night. Of the wood of Lebanon. Solomon the king made himself a palanquin. Or a chariot, a palanquin or a chariot or a couch. or a, It's that chair that they would carry the, the king and the queen on, uh, especially the, uh, the royal wedding. The, the, the bride was carried on a palanquin. He made its pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see the king, see King Solomon with the crown which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. We see in verse 11 that the great king coming up in the wilderness is a king who is a bridegroom who's glad on his wedding day. He's a glad king. He's a bridegroom king filled with gladness on his wedding day. And that is uh, where the the romance of the gospel, I believe, finds its richest pinnacle, as in the glad bridegroom king coming up for his people, bringing them to himself out of the wilderness. Before I, I go any further, uh, there, there was a word uh, that uh, Bill Barlow had uh, all throughout the day. The Lord was telling him, he said, tonight's going to be an impartation night more than even a teaching night. And so just open your spirit. I, I believe that, that that's a true word. That throughout the day he kept tugging him saying tonight's impartation come to be impacted in your spirit even more than in your understanding. Though the two of them are related. Our mind is renewed is the way that God uh, renews our spirit. And so we don't want to separate the mind from the spirit. But he says, sometimes the spirit of God will just impact our spirit with his fragrance. And then our, our own dear Nick Siret. In the morning when we were working on this, he goes, ministry time after the first session. I said, no. He goes, you wait and see. So uh, he has his uh, official first public prophecy as a Kansas City prophet here in Kansas City. <clears throat> okay. He was right. He said, it's going to happen. You wait and see. So he's one for one in the public format of prophesying. Here we go. Overview of Song of Solomon, session 3, verse 6 to 11. This is the fourth revelation of Jesus in the song. In this section, she teaches the daughters of Jerusalem her new discoveries of the safe leadership of Christ. Jesus' incarnation and death prove that He has our good in mind. That's the strength of what's going on. The fact that He has died... To provide a way for a wedding proves that it's our good that he has in mind. First Corinthians two nine says, "Eye has not seen, ears not hear, heard the things which God has prepared for us." That's the part that just just so powerfully touches my heart. The things that God has prepared for us, He's prepared them for us not only for His own glory, of which certainly that is the the the, the central motivation of. Of the plan of the gospel. But he prepared them for us too. He died and planned a wedding. Therefore we know he is safe. If he did that. The Holy Spirit asks a rhetorical question. Then gives a two part answer. And then the young bride communicates this two part answer of the Holy Spirit to the daughters of Jerusalem. The first answer The Holy Spirit uses military language to reveal how safe the people of God are under Jesus' leadership. The second answer, the Holy Spirit uses the language of a royal wedding procession to reveal how safe the people of God are under Jesus' leadership. If He would die for us and plan a wedding for us, then how safe are we in His hands is the idea. We are perfectly safe in a God that would die for us and to plan a wedding and to choose us as his wedding partner and then to plan the wedding. Then she exhorts the daughters of Jerusalem to press into Jesus in the light of his glorious redemption and his excellent leadership. In verse 11, he, uh, she says, see the king crowned on his wedding day. She is exhorting the daughters to see the king, the powerful one who's so glad and so happy that you are there on the wedding day to marry you. He's so glad, not just about being married, he's glad about you. He's glad about his bride, not just the fact of a ceremony, he's glad about the person in the ceremony, you. A king. See him crowned, see him glad, see him is standing before you on the wedding day is what she's exhorting them to see. And it's that what it's that which I call the bridal paradigm of the kingdom. Jesus is revealed to her as a safe savior. The only safe place for our hearts is in context to 100% obedience. Again, it's the issue. It's not just how much it costs us to obey. It's how much it costs us in terms of enjoying the fascination of Jesus. How much it costs us in the experience of the superior pleasures. How much it cost us in our inner man shriveling up in spiritual atrophy how much does it cost us to disobey needs to be the question of the hour it cost us so much to disobey the only safe place is going with him on whichever mountain he's beckoning us to in whichever season of our life whatever is the high place in that season is the safe place the promise of safety focuses primarily on spiritual safety that protects her heart. In a secondary way, it speaks of protecting us physically and in terms of our earthly circumstances. This is very important. Jesus never guaranteed that our physical uh, body and our physical circumstances would be perfectly safe in this life. That's why there's martyrs. He has promised to protect us in those arenas in many ways, but he's never promised a hundred percent that all of our stuff would be safe and all of our money would increase. He never said that. Some people try to present the gospel as that's the primary mode of safety, there is promises of safety that touch our physical body, that touch our, our circumstances, but those promises Though they have a, earthly, a very significantly earthly counterpart, your body is perfectly safe in the resurrected body and your treasure is safe forever in heaven. All your circumstances are. And in that, in that way, that's the highest place of safety physically and circumstantially. But in this age, though, he does promise us uh, degrees of safety and it's different in, in, in different people's lives in different circumstances. Again, the martyrs are proof of that. The real place of safety is the safety of our heart. He's saying this, in essence, if you follow me, you will be glad and exhilarated in your inner man. Your inner man will be filled with life. Your inner man will be fascinated and exhilarated. You will have the power to feel loved and the power to love back and the power to translate your earthly life into eternal glory and riches if you will follow me. He promises safety in the full sense of the inner man. He promises safety in conditional ways and in partial ways to our outer man and our circumstances, though very substantial. I don't want to minimize those in any ways. because there's many people in the kingdom of God that just that look down at that and completely ignore that dimension of the gospel. It's a very significant one, but there's others that exalted unduly. Our safety is primarily spiritual in this age. I tell you what, I'll die a martyr any day. With the promise that my heart can be tenderized and filled with love during my life on the earth. Filled with revelation, fascinated. That's the safety of the high place he promises. I love what Jesus said in, in uh, Luke 21. He says, As I promise you not one hair of your head will perish. Though they kill you, not one hair of your head will perish. He's talking about the resurrection for real, for it, Specifically. He says, oh yeah, they may kill you, but not one hair of your head will perish. He says, every single dimension of your body will be restored to you in the resurrection. I promise you that is what Jesus said. And then they killed Jesus. And they killed John the Baptist and right on through history. So it's the spiritual safety is the primary thing that we're talking about. But I tell you, we want large hearts, don't we? God's restoring the vision of a large heart to His people in these days. E, this section proves to be a significant revelation that she prepares. Chapter four is when her commitment goes into a whole nother dimension. She is absolutely fearless in her commitment from chapter four on. And it's the revelation of the safe savior. The one that promises to exhilarate her and to protect her heart each step of the way doesn 't mean that she won 't be hurt through disappointment in natural circumstances, but spiritually she will be fascinated and exhilarated if she will stay in the place of the lord she 'll stay in the way of the Lord and say yes to him here 's the dilemma many of the earthly authority figures in our life have not been safe in their leadership over our lives, so the enemy lies to us continually about jesus about Jesus are the ultimate Our ultimate authority figure. And the enemy tells us that he is not a safe leader. We can only see him. We can only fully see him. Let's say it that way. As safe from the point of view of eternity. Revelation 19 verse 7. On the last day. Every single one of the redeemed say. We rejoice and we are glad. Over the way you led us through history. Every one of us will be glad and rejoice. When we see the end of the matter. And we will proclaim that he was safe. The Holy Spirit asked a question. In my opinion, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the, it's the, it's the young bride that is speaking as well, but she's speaking, I believe, out of the overflow of the revelation. Uh, You can't have, uh, there's no uh, precision, no, uh, uh, final certainty as to who's asking the question. But we know it's a, it's a good question. It's a question that comes from God. And whether it's in the lips of the young bride or uh, which, therefore it has to come from the Holy Spirit first. If it ever reaches her lips, it had to be given to her. Here's the rhetorical question. The one with the obvious answer. Who is this coming up out of the wilderness? Of course, it's Jesus like pillars of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchant's fragrant powders. The the ascension of Jesus after His incarnation and crucifixion is being presented by the Holy Spirit to grant assurance to the young bride of Jesus' safe leadership. The realm of eternity is vital to recognizing the safe leadership of Jesus. It's Jesus re-entering back into the realm of glory is what is happening. The question, who is this? We, I, I spent uh, three messages this summer on a series called The Splendor of the Second Coming, of which I built the entire three-part series around the question, Who is this? As it depicted Jesus' re-entry with all the drama and the pageantry and the splendor of His re-entry into the, into the eternal city on the, at the fir- after His first coming and then the re-entry of Jesus with His bride after the second coming. It's the same spirit. Who is this? It's the drama, the pageantry. The question is answered in two different ways. I believe it's the Holy Spirit who's asking the rhetorical question. And then the young maiden is, the young bride is proclaiming it to the daughters. They're her new discoveries of Jesus' safe leadership. King David echoed a similar question that was asked by the heavenly host. Lift up your head, O ye gates. And then it's, who is this king? It's the same question. It's a question. It's a question of awe and wonder and majesty and fascination. It's not a question of uh, perplexity. It, the question isn't who is he technically. It's a question of the measure of the wonder and the awe of the one who is ascending. Who is he in the fullness of his beauty and of the mystery of his splendor is, the, is what the question uh, uh, denotes. The necessity of the wilderness in God's plan for the bride and for the bridegroom and the bride. Jesus had to experience the wilderness as a human being. In order to bring the bride up out of the wilderness. Who is this one? Coming up out of the wilderness. Like pillars of smoke. The wilderness can speak of several things. It can speak of life in this fallen age. It's just the wilderness of sin of this life. B. It can pick up. uh, The wilderness speaks of an intense time of testing. It can speak of a time of failure and sin. A wilderness time of, of struggle and failure and sin in our own lives can speak of a season of the counterattack of Satan, where Satan's rage is coming against us. And spiritual warfare against Satan. The wilderness speaks of the place of encounter. Jesus, John the Baptist, Moses, David, they met the Lord in the wilderness. It's the place of encounter in a very, very positive sense. Jesus spent 33 years on the earth in the wilderness of this fallen world. He spent 40 days in the wilderness of encounter in prayer and fasting. He knew the wilderness of difficult circumstances in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' victory over the wilderness. Who is this coming out of? Ascending in victory is the idea. Coming out of or ascending in victory. Jesus ascended back to the Father in total victory in the resurrection. The host of heaven witnessed Jesus coming up out of the wilderness of the fallen world after the resurrection. So he took his position at the throne of glory at the right hand again. The angels watched him in the resurrection. He is described as coming out of the fallen world to re enter the celestial city of eternal the celestial glory of the eternal city. Jesus returns to the ivory palaces in the eternal city. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 45. Of course, Psalm 45 is titled The Song of Love. It is the psalm written in the language of the Song of Solomon. I mean, you almost just want to put it as a little appendix, the Song of Solomon. But Psalm 45 is so glorious in and of itself. And here's what they say. Uh, They're talking about the bridegroom king. And they said, all of your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. That Jesus is, is being described as coming out of the ivory palaces. He left the ivory palaces when He descended in the incarnation. It's out of the ivory palaces that He, that he entered into this fallen wilderness called time and space On planet Earth. He left the ivory palaces. His garments were so scented in eternity. And that's, of course, uh, where he is right now. The ivory palaces speak of his life as God in eternity past. In heaven or in the eternal city. He descended from the ivory palace to dwell in the form of man. In the wilderness of a fallen world. In the ivory palaces, his clothes were scented with the rare fragrances of those palaces. Jesus comes up out of the wilderness in victory. He ascends. He comes, who is this one coming up out of her? Ascending in victory is another way to say it. Jesus' victory as a human is key. As a human over this fallen world makes him a sympathetic human high priest who understands our temptations. It says in Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He's sympathetic. He feels our pain because he had to come about out of the wilderness too, as a human. Jesus is described as possessing a unique dimension of sympathy that neither the Father nor the angels are described as possessing. The Father's compassion and mercy is not the same thing as Jesus' human sympathy. Jesus has a unique dimension of human sympathy. He was in the wilderness and he he ascended out of it. He knows what every step of the process is like and he has sympathy towards us in the wilderness as we ascend. He doesn't stand at a distance, commanding us to come up to him, but he experienced human life in this fallen wilderness of this world. He knows what we're going through in our quest to come out victorious. This uniquely qualifies Him to bring us to a place of safety because He understands the perilous journey as a human being. He came out. He he has sympathy. He was tested in every point like we are. Therefore, He's sympathetic towards us. He came out in victory. Therefore, we don't have to fear. He's revealing Himself to her. The Holy Spirit is revealing Jesus to her as the one that she doesn't need to be afraid to obey. We're yoked to one who conquered the wilderness as a human. Therefore, we will conquer it with Him. We don't have to be afraid of Him. He's a sympathetic leader who understands all things about the wilderness. Same quest, this question, this same question is asked in two places. Here in 3-6, but also in 8-5. Who is this one coming from the wilderness leaning on to her beloved? The first one, Jesus comes out of the wilderness here in, in chapter 3. Then the bride comes up victorious in chapter 8. The reason the bride comes out of the wilderness victorious is because she did. Uh, this parallels the two questions of Isaiah, uh, Psalm 24, verse 3 and verse 8. Uh, again, of which I built that three-part series around. It's who is the one that can ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who is the king? The king of glory. It's it's the the who question denoting the wonder and the awe and the mystery of the fullness of, of, of the beauty of the one uh, being addressed. The beauty that they possess. So these two two questions in Song of Solomon parallel the two questions in Psalm 24. For those of you that were around for, for that series. Jesus ascends to heaven in the glory of God. Oh, I love this. I love this one. Of course, which part of this don't you love? But who is he who comes out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke? Perfumed with myrrh. Perfumed with frankincense. He is pictured... As being likened to pillars of smoke. Smoke speaks of the glory and the wonder of God. Look down at Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Above it stood seraphim. They cried, transcendent beauty, unique beauty, uniqueness, uniqueness, uniqueness. Transcendent beauty, transcendent beauty, transcendent beauty. Totally other than, totally other than, totally other than is what they're crying to the Lord. And the house was filled with smoke, with the glory of God fills it as smoke. Look at Revelation 15. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could even enter the heavenly temple. The glory and the wonder of God filled the heavenly temple with the smoke of God. Well, Jesus is ascending in smoke. And there's many verses, well the others we won't read. Smoke speaks of the glory and the wonder of God. It's a manifestation of His presence. It's associated with the fire of the Holy Spirit. The smoke speaks of the fire that burns within the burning heart of God. The fire of God filled Jesus. The smoke of His seal ascended upward as a sweet savor. To God, smoke arose off the sacrifice, his sacrifice, his own sacrifice, especially reveals the love of God. He is filled with the pillar of smoke. He is the sacrifice for which the fire of God burns on. He is clothed in the smoke of the glory of God. He ascended out of the wilderness, wrapped in the heavenly garments that manifest the wonder of God's glory. He, he, he ascends like a pillar of smoke filled with the wonder and the beauty of God. This is all in the language of the tabernacle. Jesus is described as a pillar of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense ascending out of the wilderness in victory. That's what's going on here. It take you a little while to think that through and to read it line by line and think, wow, who is this who is filled with the smoke of God's burning heart as He ascends in the, in the fragrance of the glory of God is what the question it's a question of uh, uh, denoting the, the majesty and the wonder of the ascending Christ. In other words, he's a safe God. The fragrance of the ascended Christ. He's perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. Perfumed with frankincense speaks of his intercession. Frankincense or... The altar of incense, which is frankincense, is intercession. It's, it's, it's de- declared a number of times in the Scripture that the incense is intercession. He has the perfume of His death on the earth, but he has, He's perfumed as the advocate at the right hand of God, representing you, saying, Father, Father, look at my scars when you look at their sin. He stands as the advocate interceding for you at all times. He's perfumed in His eternal intercession for you. He's safe. He's the only one we can trust going to the high places of risk with. I, I uh, uh, reference Psalm 45 again, that he is, his garments are scented with myrrh. Again. All of Jesus' deeds are scented with myrrh. He died to his own will, to do the will of God. Thus his garments are forever scented with myrrh. God The Father looks at him and he says, you are so selfless. That's what being scented with myrrh, you are absolutely selfless. You care about my glory and you care about her glory. First Corinthians 2.9, he did it for our good, for our glory, it says, as well as the Father's. When he cried, it is finished, the perfume of God's myrrh drenched him. He was scented with the myrrh of God. He's also scented with a third thing, with the merchant's fragrant powders. And again, for time's sake, read that on your own. But the merchant's, Scripture interprets Scripture. Jesus spoke of the merchant as the one who sold everything to purchase the pearl. Jesus described himself as the committed merchant. And so there's the, there's the scent of myrrh, speaks of his death on the earth, on the cross. There's the scent of fragrance, that speaks of his heavenly intercession. And there's the scent of the merchant. He is the committed merchant. His commitment to us knows no end. He will sell everything to purchase the pearl. When the, when, when the merchant uh, was uh, trading in fragrant powders. The idea, and I, this is written down here, is that the merchant was was uh, perfumed with the fragrant powders. The committed merchant. Uh, when he would go home after a day's work, he was, he was scented with perfume. Jesus says, I'm not only perfumed with my death for you, I'm not only with my selfless death, I'm, not, I'm also perfumed with my eternal intercession frankincense, but I'm also, I am... The committed merchant who would pay any price at any time to purchase you. It's his eternal commitment. It's his eternal vigilance and zeal and abandonment that makes him fragrant. And the idea is, you can trust him out of the comfort zone, at the place of risk, at the high place, the mountain place. Because he has so much fragrance that relates to your good and your benefit. The Holy Spirit's ministry of protection. The Holy Spirit anoints her. It comes from the Holy Spirit, but it's also uh, uh, communicated through the lips of the, of the young bride. The Holy Spirit anoints her to proclaim the message of protection to the daughters of Jerusalem. We find that in verse 11, that she is addressing the daughters of Jerusalem. Behold. It's Solomon's couch with 60 valiant men of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of the fear of the night. The startling announcement of the royal wedding procession. Behold, it's Solomon's couch. Verse 9, it calls it the palaquin. It's the wedding chariot. You, 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 you've seen a... a You've seen this uh, portrayed in books or movies about, you know, ancient life when the king in the great procession is being carried, and the palanquin on the shoulders of, of of the bodyguard or the or the escorts, the royal escorts. Behold, who is it coming up? Who is it coming up? Is the question. See, in the natural love story, Solomon's couch is coming through the wilderness. To visit the city of Shunem, the Shulamite city. And the, and the people in the city are, are at the edge of the city and there's this cloud of dust as these, this procession, this royal procession is making its way to her insignificant little city and the neighbor, I mean the people of the city are buzzing in wonder and awe of Solomon's couch, the king's palanquin is coming to our little city. What's going on? That's what's happening in, in, in the, uh, in the natural love story. And she's waiting, going, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And everybody is just absolutely in a uh, in awe and, and wonder and excitement in the city as they're talking about who is this coming up at Solomon's couch coming to take you, young Shulamite, and bring you to the palace, to the ivory palace, as we would understand in the spirit. But in the, in the spiritual dimension, Jesus is ascending and in his ascension and in his death, he has provided a wedding chariot. He's provided a journey in this life as the espouse of the Lord that brings us back to the ivory palaces for a wedding. That's what's going on. He's a safe God. Everything he does is for our good and for our safety. The couch of all the ages is prepared for those that will freely come. It's the king's couch. It's the king's pelican. One uh, part in the notes is that uh, because Solomon, which was typical of, of a king in the ancient world, had so many wives, and many of the wives were political arrangements. Not very romantic. This uh, was a, a romantic one, but many of them were just political arrangements. And so the king's royal wedding procession would, like when uh, uh, Solomon married the daughter of, of Pharaoh, the procession went down and received her and escorted her back to Jerusalem, to the palace. That's what's going on. But again, most of his marriages were, many of them at least, the ancient kings were political. They were political alliances. If the, uh, the son and the daughter marry, then the chances of the kingdom not going at war one against another, was it was a good chance they would be at peace. Because they would both have a mutual interest. You are extravagant security in the gospel. This, The Solomon's couch or Solomon's wedding chair has 60 valiant men around it. That's fantastic. This is depicting the Holy Spirit's guarding. The Holy Spirit's keeping and protecting. It's pictured in military language. The palanquin or the couch has 60 valiant men around it. In the natural sense, this speaks of Solomon's ability to deal with his enemies in earthly warfare. In the spiritual sense, it's talking about spiritual warfare. The guard of 60 speaks of abundant security for the bride that is on the couch. Sixty guards around one king speaks of extravagant protection and security. The king of a nation usually would have 20 or 30 bodyguards. But he said, this this one, the Shulamite, is the delight of my heart. Double it. An abundant protection. I want 60. I, I want an unprecedented procession that has protection and safety in it. So here they come, you know, to this little city of Shunem. And again, the, the whole city is in an uproar. They've never seen such a procession of the noble, the valiant, the war heroes of Israel coming In their swords and in all of their battle equipment. And the point is, she is safe. That's the point. It's an extravagant provision for protection on the palanquin. Oh, they're valiant men. This speaks of Solomon's ability to protect his bride in the wilderness. In the eastern world, often the enemies would try to ambush a royal procession. Often there would be many, many more people a part of the procession. But these are 60 the top 60, the valiant soldiers, the heroes of Israel. The idea is that they're valiant, which the, the language, uh, uh, they're experts in war, they're skilled. The Holy Spirit is communicating the extravagant skill and the... The heart and the passion in the Godhead to protect the bride on her journey. That she has no need to be afraid. She's in fear for nothing. She's, her fears are just vain distractions. Because he presents himself as an extravagant number of valiant, of courageous, Soldiers who cannot be denied, the valiant ones, the experts. He says in military language, you are safe in my hands. Believe me, on my couch, nothing can harm your heart. It doesn't mean, again, you can't have pain over disappointment or natural circumstances. That's not what I'm saying. But your spirit will be exhilarated and fascinated with the Lord through the course of your life. Not every minute of every day. There are the seasons where the Lord hides himself. But as the rule of life, he will protect our spirit and make us lovers of God. Of the valiant of Israel. It's not only a valiant bodyguard, it's a loyal bodyguard. Not only are they valiant, courageous, not only are they expert in war, skilled, but they're loyal. Because the reason it says the valiant of Israel, because the native-born bodyguards were the true Israelites who loved the king. Most kings had mercenaries. They would hire out soldiers. But they wouldn't let foreign soldiers who were hirelings, who were soldiers for pay, they wouldn't let hirelings from another nation protect the king because they had no, no loyalty in their heart. They, they're, 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 they're only uh, uh, serving for hire for money anyway. So if somebody pays them a bigger amount to kill the king, it's no problem because they, they serve for hire. But the value of Israel, these are native-born, loyal the ones who love the king that would give their lives. It's extravagant language is what it's talking about. The, the Lord's saying with loyal, courageous, skillful. In other words, with adequate safety, I will make your way back to the palace in eternity. Through the wilderness, I will protect you as you come back. Skillful. They all hold swords. They're experts in war. We'll skip that because I think you have the feel for it. They're not only skillful, valiant and courageous, eager, loyal, they are prepared. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of the fear in the night. The sword is girded on the thigh to be drawn at a moment's notice. A sword girded on the thigh is not the picture of a soldier sleeping at night with his sword taken off. Remember uh, Gideon's army... The, the dividing line was their posture, their, their, their vigilance in battle. And only the 300 of Gideon's army were pictured as vigilant and prepared for war. The point is, they are prepared and ready. Their swords are girded. Their picture is ready to go. And obviously this is military uh, language, But it's speaking of the safety and the protection. And at, on every point, God the Father has seen to the protection of the bride in the wilderness. That's the, that's the idea. Because of fear in the night speaks of the powers of darkness. They're ready because the, the powers of darkness are real. Oh, this is a fantastic verse. Jude 1, 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to keep your stumbling, to keep your heart from fainting, from keep you from backsliding, to keep you tenderized, to keep you fascinated and invigorated in the inner man if you want to be, to the one that's able to keep you empowered on the inside, the one who is able to present you faultless. Before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. That's the idea of what's going on here in chapter 3. Jesus' redemption of the bride is now described. The Holy Spirit's protection is described in verse 7 and 8. Now Jesus' redemption of the bride is described here in verse 9 and 10. Of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a palanquin. He made its pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seed of, pur- of purple, its interior paved with love By the daughters of Jerusalem, or the King James says, for the daughters of Jerusalem, which I believe we'll look at in a moment, is the accurate translation. I believe the New King James by is, 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 uh, is misleading. Our safety is rooted in the divinely orchestrated plan to accomplish eternal redemption. The end of our journey is to be brought safely through the wilderness. To the marriage supper of the Lamb on the heavenly marriage, the heavenly wedding chariot. How safe is safe? Someone, the reason I put that in, someone asked me that last time. How safe is safe? And I said, He offered His own Son. That's how safe, safe is. (laughs) How safe is God? He gave His Son and chose you to be the bride and is happy over you. That's safe. That's safe. I just put it in, just right off the transcript. There you go. (laughs) King Jesus provides an eternal palanquin for his bride, the wedding chariot. Solomon the king made himself a palanquin. He made a portable chair enclosed with curtains carried on poles by the royal escorts or the royal attendants. This is the couch of verse 7. King James calls it a chariot. It's a wedding chariot, a palanquin. The royal chariot was used for the queen to be on the wedding day. It was very luxurious and comfortable. In the natural, it it was luxurious, comfortable, long enough they could even lie down in it and rest. I mean, it was uh, fully, you know, all the, uh, you know, push-button stuff. It says, Solomon the king made himself a palanquin. It's the phrase, made himself. It speaks of Jesus' work on the cross. King Solomon actually made the chariot to carry his queen. He made it himself. It was, it was specifically made by Solomon. Specifically. He attended to the design and to the actual building of this peliquin. It was very different. He didn't just command it, but he involved himself in the making of it. See, in Genesis 1... Jesus could sit as the second person of the Trinity and speak, and the worlds came into being. But when it came to redemption and providing Himself a bride, He couldn't sit and speak. He had to stand, descend, and be crushed by the wrath of God. He had to make it Himself. He couldn't stand at a distance and command it. He had to involve Himself in a very, very personal way. The King Himself made the peliquin. Oh, I love this. He made the palaquin of the wood of Lebanon. Oh, this is fantastic. He made it of the wood of Lebanon. It's made from the wood of Lebanon. Wood in the language of the Old Testament speaks of humanity many, many times in the symbolism of the Old Testament of the tabernacle. And I, and I have a, a, a bit on that. But wood speaks of humanity. And I even give a, a couple paragraphs as to why. Wood speaks of humanity. The chair, the palanquin, was not made by a God who stayed in heaven to command, like Genesis 1, when he created the universe, to observe our dilemma. He had to become a man. The palanquin was made of the wood. He had to become human to make it himself. He couldn't make this couch staying in heaven. He had to lay aside the form of God, became a man. The chair was made of of his own humanity. Could not be made from any other substance. He had to become flesh. Speaks of the the wood of Lebanon. The glory and the marvel of this palanquin or couch is that it was made from the most costly and the strongest wood. The wood of Lebanon was fragrant. It was the most expensive. It had the best fragrance and it was the strongest wood in all the known world at that time. Jesus said of the humanity that I came forth from, I was perfect. My fragrance, my strength, my stability, my value was unsurpassed in anything. He is made of the wood of Lebanon. The most fragrant, costly, stable wood known, to, uh, known to, to the whole known world of, of, of at least the world of Israel. It's a very costly wood. It's the strongest, most powerful, stately, fragrant, rare. That is the wood that made the Temple of Solomon. That is the choice wood for which the dwelling place of redeemed humanity is called the gospel. He made the wedding chair by himself, by his own humanity. Jesus' redemption of the bride is described. He made its pillars of silver, its supports of gold, its seeds of purple. The support like, like uh, support railings around it. The support meant the railings around the seat is the idea. The safety uh, railings were made of gold. Obviously, that is of the divine nature and the highest value, etc. I have that. Its pillars were made of silver. That's redemption. And I developed that. The seat that she was sitting on, I love it. It's made of purple. Its seat is of purple. It speaks of royalty and authority. We rest on a gospel palaquin. We rest on a marriage. On a marriage chariot that was planned by the authority of God. It has the Father's authority. The seat we're sitting on is established by the Father. It's purple. It's royal. Not only can it not be... Uh, 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 upturned because of the Father's authority, we enter into the authority of God by sitting on it. Its seat, the place we rest, is royal. It comes from God's authority and is protected by God's authority, and it gives us God's authority in the hierarchy of heaven forever and forever. Its interior is paved with love. What a sentence! For the daughters of Jerusalem. And I describe why, or, or uh, I say why I believe it should be the word for the daughters of Jerusalem. It's paved with love. This wedding palanquin was paved with love. His banner over me is love, is what the young bride said. She's saying it again. She's telling the daughters of Jerusalem, she's saying, Daughters, daughters, every bit of this, is the inner linings is the love of God. It's a romance. It's a stunning, lovesick affair in purity and in glory. It's made of gold. You're protected by a, a railing of gold. It's established by silver redemption. It brings you into the very realm of God's authority. And the inner linings of the entire uh, 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 wedding chariot is paved with the linings of the love of God. You feel the love of God. Then you... You receive the love of God. It's imparted to you to love God back and to love one another. The whole thing is paved. The interior is paved with the love of God. Beloved, this is a great plan called the gospel. It's paved with love at every step. Isn't that fantastic? This isn't just a Bible study. I'm telling you your story in advance. I'm serious. You are right now on a palanquin in the wilderness. You will ascend in victory and everything that God does to beckon you out of the comfort zone is paved with love for you and it will result in you growing in love for him and both feeling loved and the power to love back will exhilarate you and bring you into the highest place of any created being in God's order. Receiving his love and the power to to, uh, uh, to have the impartation to give it back Separates us for, from the rest of creation That is what's happening in your life We don't have to be afraid of 100% commitment Again I'm not looking for a doctrine of the grace of God That frees me quote unquote, To live in spiritual boredom To live in superficiality I want to be wholehearted for God I want to be love sick. I want to fast I don't want not to fast One guy came to me one time and he says I spent an evening with the Lord. He says, well, you don't really have to do that. The Lord, because they were all going out to dinner once, which is fine to do that. And on a ministry trip, a bunch of the preachers were uh, the speakers. I said, I'm going to stay in tonight. And, And the guy said, you don't have to do that. The Lord doesn't mind. I said, oh, that's not the problem. I mind. I'm lovesick. I'm starving. I'm aching. I'm craving. I mind. I'm agitated. I want more. He says, man, I'm sorry. I said, I don't want a doctrine to free me to live in boredom. I want grace that it empowers me to walk in love. So there. I've, I hear that everywhere I go. It just, it just, it's like, a, a fingernails on a chalkboard to me. It's just, it's so gross to me. The idea that, that, uh, this, I'm just gonna go on a little bunny trail here, but this is such a great verse, I, verse 11. I gotta make sure I only got a minute or two left, but, it's so the second corinthians 3:18 where the spirit of the lord is there's liberty. You know what that's talking about? The spirit of the lord of liberty is the liberation of the inner man into the power of god. I'm not trying to make a point about this, but to, but today the cool thing is to is to be liberated so we can you know, uh, go to the limits of alcohol and go to the limits of vulgarity because "quote we're under grace," or or to dabble in sexual impurity and and in the movie in the deal arena. Well, we're under grace. That's not the liberty. It's, it's not talking about the liberty to sin and not be judged. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the liberty to be free from sin, to enter into a place that's unique for the saints. The liberty of the gospel supernaturally liberates us to live by superior pleasures. It doesn't empower us to live in the low things of this world using, the, bragging on the grace of God in a false way. Now, I'm not commenting on where God will forgive on those area, on those issues. That's not my point. His forgiveness is vast. But when I hear those kinds of things, believers going to the edge of alcohol that's everywhere in the body of Christ, the whole, seems like church in the western world is in a midlife crisis right now. And how much they can use vulgarity and how God understands the impurity that's being vomited out of hell in the media today. And, well, the Lord, that's not the liberty we're called in. It's the liberty to walk in supernatural lovesickness. It's the liberty to be fascinated. It's the inner man supernaturally empowered with a divine life. That's the liberty of the gospel. And again, I, I see the folks in this and I don't have all my little charts and rules on all those things. I, because I, I don't even think that way. But I look and I go, you're ripped off if you think that's what grace is about. Grace is about no one around, everything crashing in. You close your eyes and your heart goes, I love you and you love me and I love being loved and I love loving you. Oh, yes, I carry the reward in me. That's the liberty of the gospel that the, Paul the Apostle talked about. Another thing, it just cringes at me. And it just, by the way, this church is filled with that. There's plenty of people in this very body that are lost in that deception. And it's called the grace of God. We don't have to keep the rules. I go, I don't even comprehend that paradigm. I want to call people into a place. I want to fast. I want to pray. I want to be abandoned. I want to go to the high places. I don't want to be free to be content superficial. I don't want to be bored. I don't want to live in sin and be covered. I want to be freed. I want to soar. That's where God's calling his in time church. I'm going to try to do verse 11 here. It's so powerful. She tells the people, the daughters, her secret. The daughters of Jerusalem. Go to page 23. Number 3 and 4, It's I'm summing it up. It's the king with a crown on his wedding day filled with gladness. It's the bridal paradigm of the kingdom see the king in his uh, see him crowned uh, uh, with a crown on his on on his wedding day the vision that's going to motivate us to the romance of the gospel is jesus as a king with a crown with a glad heart eager to be married to you that's what changes everything she gives the thing that she discovered in verse in verse, chapter three, verse four, when it says, I found him and held on to him. When she found him, I believe she found, verse 11, she found a God who is king with all power, who has a crown, who's happy, who is ha- getting married, and she's the one that he's glad about. She said, if you're that glad about me and you have that much power, why am I afraid? That's the point. She's entering into the bridal paradigm. The king is crowned, a very significant phrase, with the crown with which his mother crowned him. It's a very, very significant phrase. And that's, I don't know that we'll get uh, much further than that while well, we're at the end here. The mother speaks of the church. Here's the deal. There is one sense of which we crown the Lord. He's king no matter what. He has many crowns. But when the church says, I love you, we make him our king as a bridegroom king. He's king of, of, of the wicked in hell. But he's a bridegroom king when you say yes. And we, the mother, the church through history, the redeemed through history, we crown him as our bridegroom king, as a voluntary lover. That's the crown that he, des- he desires more than any other crown. It's the crown that makes him glad. It's the paradigm of a glad God. Glad about you, and glad that you chose to make him the king of your life, the bridegroom king of your life. Further, as a voluntary lover, that's the crown that makes him glad. Of all the crowns he possesses, that's the crown I believe that he desires most—the one that you crown him with as a voluntary lover. Amen. Stand. That's why I don't want to. I don't want to live in compromise. I want to crown Him in my life. I want to crown Him as my King. He's King by the Father's coronation. But He's King in a personal sense in my life when I say yes to Him. I'm not afraid of Him by faith. Of course, in my weakness, I back away. But I'm committed to get up off the bed and say, I love You. I want You, Lord. Amen. So Nick, you prophesied that we're going to have a ministry time. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we want to crown you. Father, we know that you've crowned him. Oh, but in our individual way, we want to crown him as our bridegroom king. Oh, his heart is so glad. Beloved, he is so glad when a weak believer crowns him. He is so glad when you crown him king On his wedding day Not just king but bridegroom king A king at a wedding This is the revelation that changed her She held on to him and this is what she saw This will change the way you view obedience He's a safe savior He is so safe He will not injure your heart. He will exhilarate you. Sin will destroy us. Obedience will cause our spirit to be exhilarated. Oh, Lord, we just disavow our fears. We renounce them. We want to be yours. We want to forgive the people angry at us. Just wildly forgive them. Because we're not afraid to forgive them. We want to just... Wildly, recklessly before you in love. Release everyone who's against us. Because we're not afraid because you're our king. We don't need all of their stuff. We need you, Lord. If they did it wrong to us, you're our king. We free them. We're yours. We're wild about you. If people want to take away our stuff, our hearts are going to be yours, oh God, because we have you. They can take away our honor and they can take away some of our finance and they can damage our reputation, but we have you. We have a glad God who's a bridegroom. We have a glad king who's glad about me. I have you, God. I don't. It's not so bad if they think I'm all. That's okay. We can be yours. This frees you to be wild in your abandonment to God. This vision of the Lord. The mountain doesn't scare you. If a glad bridegroom is the one escorting you on the mountaintops. He has the whole military of heaven behind him. The one that escorts you on the mountains is the captain of the Lord's army. He has all the power of God at his disposal. We have nothing to be afraid of. Tell the Lord, Oh Lord, I love You. Oh, You're drenched in fragrance and myrrh. Oh, of the, of the wood of Lebanon, You came to me, O oh, sympathetic God. Lead me out in victory over the wilderness. This concludes this tape presentation from Friends of the Bridegroom. For more information on resources available from Mike Bickle, as well as news about upcoming conferences and live broadcasts, visit our website at www.fotb.com. Thank you.